All right, well, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, and we'll read verses 23 to 25. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. There it says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you have granted to us. And Lord, how your word so clearly sets forth for us the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. Lord, we know that your ultimate purpose and plan for this present world is that he might have first place and that he might have supremacy over all the works of your hands. Lord, may you teach us today, Lord, of his greatness, of, Lord, how much more glorious he is as a high priest over those who came from the house of Aaron because of his power of an indestructible life. Lord, may we see in him that all that is needed for us, for our salvation, Lord, to secure us and to save to the uttermost those who believe. Lord, everything has been provided for him, and we thank you that even today, this very moment, Lord, we know that he lives to make intercession for us, in that our persons... Lord, our worship, Lord, our service to you, Lord, that it is only acceptable to you because of this great high priest that we have who lives to intercede for us. So, Lord, teach us this and give it to us a greater confidence, Lord, that we are accepted in your sight, Lord, that we are beloved by you on the basis of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in this chapter, the apostle has been bringing forward many arguments concerning the priesthood of Christ as it was first typified in the priesthood of Melchizedek, right? His purpose has been to prove and to demonstrate without any reputation the superiority of Jesus as high priest over and above those priests that came from the tribe of Levi who were established under the law of Moses, And we remember that there is this connection between the priesthood and the law or the covenant that was made at Sinai. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11, he said that it was on the basis of the Levitical priesthood that the people received the law. And this is why when there is a change of priesthood, there is a change of law as well, is what it says in Hebrews 7 verse 12. So we're not just dealing with a change of priesthood. We're dealing with a change of law as well, an entire new system of worship, a new and a different covenant. Jesus does not simply take the place of Aaron and then serves as the high priest on earth in the tabernacle made with human hands. He does not become the new administrator of the old covenant. He becomes the high priest, the head of a better covenant of the new covenant. The high priest from the house of Aaron right, the priest who served as the administrator of that old covenant. He was the mediator between God and man, yet his ministry, we've seen, was described as weak and useless. Not only the high priest personally, but everything associated with his priesthood, 
The sacrifices that he offered, the tabernacle in which he served, the altar where he performed his duties, even the law that came through him, all of it was weak and useless as to the perfecting of sinners, as to the providing of atonement for the people. Jesus is the high priest, the administrator, the mediator of a better covenant, of a new and distinct covenant from that one established there at Sinai. The former commandment, he says, has been set aside because of its weaknesses and its uselessness, because the law made nothing perfect, and there is the bringing in, the ushering in of a better hope through which we as sinners draw near to God. This better hope is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is his priesthood, and this is what the apostle has been proving throughout Hebrews chapter 7. It is only through Christ, only through his mediation, that sin can be atoned for and that sinners can be perfected so that we have the right to draw near to God. He has done with us, for us what the law could not do. He has done what Aaron nor none of his sons could do. He and he alone has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. And anyone who refuses to come to God through Christ, anyone who prefers the priesthood of Aaron or any other priesthood over Christ is cutting himself off from any hope of salvation. This is what the apostle must demonstrate. Aaron's priesthood and the law associated with that priesthood must be set aside. It must fade away in Jesus Christ and his priesthood. They must have supremacy. This isn't optional. It is something that must happen if the people are going to know salvation. The priesthood of Aaron, the law of Moses, the covenant at Sinai. All of these had their place and purpose in the decrees, in the plans of God. But they were always intended to be temporary. Until the promised seed should come, until the priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek. And God placed in the Old Testament, both before and after its establishment, right, both before and after the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood and the Old Covenant, there were many clues or signals that were placed there by God to show that it was temporary, that it was weak, that it was useless, and that one day it must give way to what can actually perfect the people, and at that time it must be set aside. Last week in verses 22-22, We saw there that it was the oath of God which demonstrated the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. The Levitical priests received their priesthood legitimately from God, but they did not receive it by way of an oath. Jesus received his priesthood legitimately from God, but his priesthood was confirmed with an oath, proving that his priesthood is superior to that of the Old Covenant. Today he brings forward the final consideration of Hebrews chapter 7 concerning the priesthood of Jesus in contrast to the priesthood of Aaron. A final uh, point for us to see and to consider that proves his priesthood is superior to that of Aaron's. So 23 will show what is true of Aaron's priesthood. 24 shows what is true of Jesus in his priesthood. And then 25, what are the advantages or what are the consequences, the benefits of the priesthood of Jesus? What is he able to do for sinners as high priest because of his glorious immortality? So let's begin and we'll start this week with the first two of these, verses 23 and 24. Hebrews seven twenty-three says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. 
Here, the former priests, and these are those priests who served under the old covenant, those who ministered in the tabernacle on earth, the one that was made with human hands, those established by God through Moses at Mount Sinai. The first of these priests was Aaron, and then a succession of high priests who came from his family until that priesthood was abolished at around 70 AD. There were many priests in every generation. There was the high priest, and then there were lesser priests who served as his attendants, who helped him perform the duties of that office. But really, this office or this function, the function of the priesthood, all of it resides on this one person and in this one supreme office, which is the office of high priest. Under the old covenant, it was necessary for the high priest to have many attendants because of his own limitations. No one individual could perform all of the duties associated with that office. But all of those duties were performed under the authority, under the power of the high priest. He was the chief among the priests, and the entire system of worship found its pinnacle in that person and was performed under his leadership and under his ministry. This is why the passage has been contrasting the priesthood of Jesus and the priesthood of Aaron. It's specifically in that role of high priest. And Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is contrasting him with those high priests who served over the years according to the order of Aaron. The former priests then were those high priests who served under the old covenant. And during that period of time when this covenant was operational, a 1400 to 1500 year period of time when the law of Moses, when the covenant of Sinai was ruling and regulating the worship and the life of the children of Israel, there were many priests. These are the former priests. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 5, there he calls them the sons of Levi. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 8, he refers to them there as mortal men. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, he calls it the Levitical priesthood. And in Hebrews 7, 21, he called them priests who were made priests without an oath. This is who he is referring to when he says the former priest. It is those priests who served under the old covenant and specifically the high priest. And there were, in both cases, it is true. There were former priests who were high priests from Aaron until it was brought to its end. And then there are former priests who were the lesser priests who served and who helped Aaron and the high priest perform the function of the priesthood. He next says, the former priest on the one hand existed in greater numbers. This is an irrefutable fact, a clear, undeniable observation from both scripture and from the experience of the people of Israel. Scripture clearly records for us a succession of priests and a succession of the priesthood. 1 Chronicles 6 verses 1 to 5 is one such catalog where we have the genealogy in this succession laid out for us. Hebrew or Hebrews 1 Chronicles 1 Chronicles 6 1 to 15 says, the sons of Levi were Gershon and Kohath and Merari. The sons of Kohath were Amron and Izhar and Hebron and Uzael. The children of Amron were Aaron, Moses, Miriam. And the sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. 
Eleazar became the father of Phineas, and Phineas became the father of Abishua. Abishua became the father of Buki, Buki became the father of Uzi, and Uzi became the father of Zerahiah, and Zerahiah became the father of Merioth, and Merioth became the father of Amariah, and Amariah became the father of Ahitub, and Ahitub became the father of Zadok, and Zadok became the father of Ahizmaz. Ahizmaz became the father of Azariah, and Azariah became the father of uh, Johanan. Johanan became the father of Azariah. It was he who served as the priest in the house which Solomon built in Jerusalem. And Azariah became the father of Amariah, and Amariah became the father of Ahitub. And Ahitub became the father of Zadok, and Zadok became the father of Shalom. And Shalom became the father of Hilkiah, and Hilkiah became the father of Azariah. And Azariah became the father of Sarariah, and Sarariah became the father of Jehozadok. And Jehozadok went along when the Lord carried Judah and Jerusalem away into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. Here, there is a chronology of the priest, the high priest, from Aaron all the way until the deportation that took place when they were taken out of Israel and taken there into the land of Babylon. Then also, chapter 6 of 1 Chronicles 49 to 53. It says, But Aaron and his sons offered on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense for all the work of the Most Holy to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. These are the sons of Aaron, Eleazar his son, Phinehas his son, Abishua his son, Buki his son, Uzziah his son, Zariah his son, Merioth his son, Amariah his son, Ahitub his son, Zarak his son, Ahimaz his son. Here, again, we have this succession from Aaron to Eleazar to Phinehas on down from generation to generation of those high priests who were descended from the line of Aaron. So this is an irrefutable fact that is laid out for us in Scripture. And what was it that caused there to be this need of succession? Why was it that Aaron's priesthood gave way to Eleazar's priesthood? And then Eleazar's priesthood gave way to Phinehas' priesthood. It was their death. The death of the high priest prevented them from continuing in this office. So this is an irrefutable scriptural proof that is here provided in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. Also, this is a fact that would have been known to the life of the people. That during the lifetime, generally speaking, if a person lived out their uh, proper number of years, they would experience in their lifetime this change of priesthood. They would have seen it and experienced in their own life and in their own experiences as children of Israel. They would have witnessed the change. One would die and another would succeed him. Just like it is for us with presidents. We all throughout the course of our life know that every four to eight years, there is a change of administration. There is a change of president and we have all witnessed this. And many of us have lived to see former presidents even die. So we know that there is a succession in that way. Now, in our case, this change of administration is due to elections and due to the way our Constitution is set up. In their case, this succession was due to death. Death is what brought it about so that there was the need of another priest. So this is something that is known to the Israelites, that there were former priests and they existed in great numbers. And, the, and this is recorded in the Bible, and it's also something that would have been known to them in their own life. The former priest existed in greater numbers. 
And that is true both in every generation. There were great numbers of priests. And it is also true in terms of the course of the history of Israel and the uh, establishment of the Old Covenant. There were a great number of high priests who served from its inception and from the institution of Aaron until it was brought to its end over the course of that 1,400-year period. The Jews account that there were 83 high priests from Aaron to the final high priest, whose name was Phineas, who was killed when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. So the office of high priest was entrusted to Aaron's family and then passed down from generation to generation through this succession. Right? And we know that there is a greater number of them under the Old Covenant than there is under the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the former priests existed in greater numbers. If you take the accounting of the Jews, there were 83 high priests. In the New Covenant, how many high priests are there? There's only one. So it's a greater number, 83 is higher, it's a bigger number, than the one who serves under the New Covenant. The people always stood in need of a high priest. The succession of high priests from the family of Aaron was the provision made by God to supply this need for Israel. Yet this provision, though a gracious provision provided by God, it still signifies the weakness, the imperfection, and the mutability of that priesthood. The office of high priest from the family of Aaron under the old covenant was always subject to constant change. There was no stability in the office because it was always passing from one person down to another. Now, why is that the case? Well, notice what he says. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. The reason why this was necessary and why this is an irrefutable fact is because of the presence of death. Death prevented any one person from serving in that office forever, continuing and holding it. Death forbid that to be the case. None of the priests under that order could ever obtain a perpetual, eternal priesthood. And it was death that ensured and prohibited this from being realized. Yet, if sinful men will be reconciled to God, if we are going to draw near to God, we must do so through a high priest. And for how many seconds a day do we need a high priest? Every second of every day. We need someone ministering on our behalf. We need someone making continual intercession for us. And this was impossible to be accomplished under the old covenant because there the high priests were mortal men subject to all of the limitations of mortality, which is ultimately signified and seen in that all of them succumbed to death and they are held captive by the grave. There are many ways in which the Levitical priesthood is weak and imperfect. But the greatest of these, the most clear and obvious way in which it is demonstrated and manifest, the weakness, the uselessness, the imperfection of that priesthood is that they were all mortal men and they all died. They all died and they remain dead and they are still dead to this very day. This is the most obvious way in which it is seen and manifested that this is an imperfect priesthood and that it is not able to deliver the people from sin and the consequences of sin, which is death. 
the uselessness of the Aaronic priesthood is manifested in death. And it's in Aaron's death, and it's in the death of every high priest who served at that altar, from that order beginning with Aaron. And God demonstrated this visibly in the case of Aaron. He commanded Aaron to die publicly in front of the people in order to manifest and to display his weakness, his frailty, that this man who has been serving as your high priest is himself still a sinner and is himself still under the power of death to confirm this truth. Numbers 20, 25 to 29. Numbers 20, 25 to 29. Here we have recorded for us the death of Aaron and how it came about and how it is that God wanted this to be displayed in the presence of the people. Numbers 20, 25. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up to Mount Hor. And strip Aaron of his garments, and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron will be gathered to his people, and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments, and put them on his son Eleazar. Aaron died there on the mountain top. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain, and when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. So God here made them go up on the mountain in the sight of all the people. Aaron there, dressed in his priestly garb, went up on the mountain, but then Aaron did not come back down. His son Eleazar came down, now dressed in the priestly garb, but Aaron died there on top of the mountain, and this was displayed in the sight of all the people. And even here, we have another confirmation of his weakness in that the reason he was prohibited from even entering into the promised land is because he rebelled against the Lord. It was the sin that he committed along with Moses there at the waters of Meribah when they provoked the Lord to anger. The personal administration of Aaron as high priest ended at his death. When he died, he no longer served in that capacity. He was not high priest anymore. Now, his son Eleazar took up his personal administration of the office of high priest, and he served according to the number of his days. And then he died, and it was passed on to his son Phineas. And this is a great imperfection associated with that priesthood. This imperfection is unavoidable. All of these men, no matter how hard they tried, they could exercise every day of their life. Eat only vegetables and drink only water. And yet, what will happen to all of them? They're all eventually going to die. And then after they died, where do they remain? To this very day, where do all of them remain? Their bodies. They remain dead in their graves. This is what it says in Acts 2.29 concerning David, the prophet David. Peter says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He died, he was buried, and his tomb remains with us to this day. And the same thing that is said about David can be applied to Aaron, to Moses, 
and to anyone else there in the Old Testament. We may confidently say regarding the high priest Aaron, he both died, he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. How can this man save us from sin and death who is himself subject to sin and death? How can he deliver us who himself died, was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day? There is an inseparable connection between sin and death. These two always go hand in hand. It says so in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, and then death came in through that sin. And then sin spread to all men because all sin. And how do we know that sin has spread to all men? What happens to every single man? Everyone dies. If sin did not spread to all men, if there was a race or a group of people that were not impacted and affected by Adam's sin, then they wouldn't die. They would live forever. But we know that in this world in which we live, on this earth, the whole world has been subjected to futility. And this is manifested and seen in the death of generation after generation after generation. And we all know that it's true here as well. That every one of us, if time goes on, we're all going to die one day. And one day, people will be gathered, Lord willing, at this church, and none of us will be here. It'll be a whole new group of people. We need to be delivered from sin, and we need to be delivered from death. And if we are going to be delivered from sin and death, then we must have a high priest who can actually accomplish this for us. The purpose of the high priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Gifts that actually take away our sin. And if the gift and sacrifice takes away our sin, what happens to the consequence of that sin? It is taken away as well. Sin and death must be removed by the gifts and sacrifices offered on behalf of the people by their high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. We remember there it says that every high priest chosen from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. They did this for the people. They did it for themselves. But were the sacrifices that they offered for the people and for themselves, were they actually able to remove the guilt of their sins? And the answer is no. And how is this clearly manifested and displayed in the person of the high priest? It's in their death. They all died. They all died under the old covenant. The high priest died. So how can that man deliver us from sin who is himself still under the power of sin and death? The death of the high priest from the order of Aaron proved that there is no salvation in them. That office as occupied by mere mortal men who are still obnoxious to sin and death. How could any man under that covenant enjoy a moment's peace with the prospect of knowing that in his hour of greatest need, his high priest appointed for him might die and he might be without one. Or maybe he was sick 
Or maybe he was tired and weary. Or maybe because he's a man of flesh, he would be impatient and unwilling. The great weakness of the Old Covenant is that the chief office, the office of high priest, was occupied by sinful, mortal, frail men who were prevented by death from continuing. The succession of priests was a clear manifestation of the weakness and uselessness of the priesthood under the Old Covenant. The ultimate solution did not lie in Aaron or any of his sons, and it did not lie in the sacrifices that they offered on behalf of the people. And this is because sin and death continued to operate in them, and they all succumbed to death. Verse 24. Here, then, the supremacy of Christ. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. In contrast to the weakness, to the imperfection, to the limitations of the former priest, here we have a priest who is powerful. We have one who is perfect. We have one who is glorious, the glorious priesthood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, on the other hand, continues forever. In contrast to Aaron, who did not continue forever, and to none of his sons, who did not continue forever, Jesus continues forever. Here, the attention, the focus is placed on the life of Christ in contrast to the life of those who served from Aaron's order. Under the former commandment, there was the necessity that the office of high priest be filled by many various persons because death prevented any one man, right? Any one person from the order of Aaron from occupying that priesthood permanently. Death prevented them. This was the weakness that made the office useless and powerless. But is Jesus subject to that weakness? Is he subjected to death? No such weakness exists with the person of Christ. He continues forever. He possesses eternal life in himself. Remember what he said in Hebrews 7 verse 16, that Jesus is a high priest, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, He is a high priest on the basis of an indestructible life. It is his indestructible life that qualifies him to serve as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And as a man, as a person who possesses the power of an indestructible life, he fills the office of priest with power. It is the person of Jesus that fills the office of priest with power, so that now this office is able to actually save sinners, to perfect sinners, to take away their sin, and to overcome sin's consequences, which is death. Because Jesus continues forever, he does not need to pass his priesthood down to his son, down to a successor, right, to any other man. He is able to occupy it permanently, perpetually, because he is not subject to the chief weakness that made a succession necessary under the old covenant. Jesus is the only high priest of the new covenant. There will never be, there never has been, and there never will be another high priest under the new covenant. And this is a great advantage to those who live under the new covenant. It will never be occupied by another. There is no need because Jesus, the high priest of the new covenant, continues forever. Therefore, he holds his priesthood permanently. Now, we might say, well, Jesus died. 
he died on the cross. And it is true that Jesus did die. But even though he died, and this being a chief article of our faith, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, but there is a major distinction between the death of Jesus as high priest and the death of those who came from Aaron's line as high priest. All of those priests from Aaron's line, they died because they were sinners. But Jesus did not die because he himself was a sinner. He died as a sacrifice for sin. He died as a substitute for sinners. So even in his death, Jesus was not prevented from performing the duties of high priest because we must remember in the new covenant, Jesus is not only the high priest, but what other role does he have? He is the sacrifice as well. He is everything. In the old covenant, the high priest offered a sacrifice that was independent, that was separate from him. He offered the blood of bulls and goats. But Jesus is both the high priest of the new covenant and he is the sacrifice that is offered on behalf of those that he represents, those that he ministers on behalf of. As high priest, he is appointed on behalf of men to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. But the sacrifice he offers, the gift that he offers, is not the blood of bulls and goats, but rather it is his own body and it is his own blood. The high priest of the new covenant offers himself for the sins of the people. So in the death of Christ, he's not prevented from performing the duty of high priest, but rather in his death, he fulfills the duty of high priest and the sacrifice that he offers. Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 to 6. Hebrews 8, 1 to 6 says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Then also chapter 10. There we see in chapter 8 that every high priest has to offer gifts and sacrifices. Well, Jesus is a high priest, so what is it necessary for him to do? He has to offer gifts and sacrifices. It is necessary for him to do this. There is no such thing as a high priest who does not offer gifts and sacrifices. That's the sole function of the high priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Jesus is high priest of the new covenant. Therefore, he must offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. Hebrews 10, 5 to 18. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. 
By this will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every high priest or every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By one offering, by the offering of himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. The death of the high priest of the old covenant was evidence of his weakness, the weakness of the office, the inability of those serving at that altar to remove the sin and to perfect the people. All of those priests who served from Aaron died, they were all buried, and they are still under the power of the grave to this day. All their tombs remain with us to this very day. But the death of the high priest of the new covenant is not a sign of his weakness, but rather it is a manifestation of us, to us, of the power and of the wisdom of God. This is why in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25, there the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that the cross of Christ, which is foolish to those who are perishing, but what is it to us who believe? What is it to those whose minds have been opened to these realities? What is it to God? It is the power of God, and it is the wisdom of God to all who believe. His death is not a sign of weakness. His death is a sign of the wisdom and power of God for salvation. And while it is true that Jesus died and was buried, in this way there is a similarity between Jesus and Aaron. Aaron died and was buried. Jesus died and was buried. However, there is a massive distinction between Aaron and Jesus. That's where the similarity ends. Aaron died and was buried, and according to Acts 2.29, his tomb remains with us to this day. Jesus died and was buried, but does his tomb remain with us to this day? No. And this is where the similarity ends. But we confess, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, but his tomb does not remain with us to this day. Rather, he rose from the grave, demonstrating visibly and publicly to all that death no longer has dominion over him and that God has accepted his sacrifice for sins. His tomb is empty because he has risen from the the grave and now Jesus possesses the power of an indestructible life in two regards. Both as the Son of God. As the Son of God, His divine nature is an eternal nature. He has eternal life in Himself, and He Himself is the author of life. Jesus, as the Son of God, possesses eternal life, and He gives life to all men. But also now, His human nature has the power of an indestructible life. Because His human nature is no longer susceptible to death. Death no longer has any dominion over the human nature of Christ. He can never die as a man again, but rather, as a man, he possesses eternal life. 
As it says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, can never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Romans chapter 6, verse 9. And this is why his priesthood is so superior to the priesthood of Aaron. It is Jesus Christ who occupies the office of priest. It is his person. It is his life that makes his priesthood powerful unto salvation for sinners. Compare Jesus to Aaron. Who is greater? Is Jesus greater or is Aaron greater? Who is superior? Who of the two is more excellent? Aaron does not excel Jesus in anything except for two things. There are only two things that Aaron is better than Jesus at doing. One is sinning and the other is dying. Those are the only things that he excels Jesus Christ in. Sin and death. And these are the two great enemies that must be overcome. God has appointed the high priest to address this need for sinful men. All of those high priests under the old covenant were all sinners. They all died. They were all buried and their tombs remain with us to this day. And this is why they existed in greater number. And how can there be any salvation in a high priest who is himself enslaved to sin and who is himself under the power of death? Isn't it true that that high priest needs himself a high priest who can deliver him from sin and death? How can he save us who cannot save himself? It says in Psalm 49, 7-9, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No man can ransom or redeem the life of another. No sinful man, no mere man, no man who rises up from Adam's corrupt race can ever do this. But there is one man who can, that is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, never sinned. Jesus died, but not for his sins, but for ours. In his death, he destroyed sin and death and overcame the grave. He displayed this by rising to immortal life. He has the power of an indestructible life. He cannot die, and therefore, he holds his priesthood permanently. Can this high priest save us? Can he deliver us from sin and death? Of course he can. And he has displayed this to us. By his resurrection from the dead. He has defeated sin and death, and he has proven it through his resurrection. Now, one last observation for us today. In all of this, what we must see and understand, that it is the life of Jesus Christ. It is his life and it is his person that gives power to the offices that are necessary for our salvation. In order for us to be saved... We need a prophet, we need a high priest, and we need a king. We need a prophet who can teach us and reveal to us the will of God. We need a high priest to offer gifts and sacrifice for our sins and who can intercede to God on our behalf. We need a king to rule over us and to protect us from all harm. All three of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, all of them existed in the Old Testament. There were prophets in the Old Testament. There were priests in the Old Testament. There were kings in the Old Testament. 
Yet none of these offices could ever produce salvation for sinful men so long as those offices were occupied by mere mortal men. Take, for example, Moses, chief of the Old Testament prophets. Could Moses ever bring the office of prophet to a perfect state? Could Moses perfectly reveal the will of God to us? Was Moses, did God ever say of Moses that Moses is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature? Was Moses able to purchase for us the blessing of the Holy Spirit by offering his own blood for our redemption? Moses, though he was a great prophet of God, could never pour out the Holy Spirit upon God's people. And this was true not only of Moses, but all of the prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of the minor prophets, they were all faithful servants in the house of God. But none of them were the Son of God. God never declared or decreed, you are my son. He never said that to any of them. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so none of those men, because of their sinfulness, because of their weakness, God chose to use them, but none of them could bring that office of prophet to a perfect state. They could not bring it to his proper end. Aaron, for example, then, was the chief of the Old Testament high priest. But could Aaron ever bring the office of high priest to a perfect state? Aaron could never offer any gift or any sacrifice for the sins of the people that could actually take away their sins. He was unable to make the people perfect through his ministry. He could not grant to the people the right and privilege to draw near to God through him. Aaron could not offer his sinless life as a substitute for the people, for Aaron himself was a sinful man. He could not deliver them from death, for he himself was subjected to death. And not only was this true of Aaron, it was true of his son Eleazar, it was true of his grandson Phinehas, it was true of all of the high priests who served under the old covenant. Right, The best of them were servants in the house of God. Now there were even others, the worst of them, they weren't even servants in the house of God, they were traitors, they were enemies in the house of God who completely spoiled and corrupted that institution. But even the best of them were merely servants in the house of God. Did God say to any of them, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? Did God say that I'm going to, I, I have sworn and I will not change my mind. I'm giving you an eternal priesthood. He never made that proclamation concerning Aaron or any of his sons. So could Aaron or his sons bring the office of high priest to its proper end? for the salvation of the people? And the answer is no. David, the greatest, the chief of the kings under the Old Testament. But David could not bring the office of king to a perfect state. David could not rule the people in perfect righteousness. David could not deliver them from all of their enemies. David was an instrument used by God to deliver Israel from various temporal enemies, from hostile nations and violent oppressors. But he was powerless to deliver the people from spiritual enemies. Could David deliver them from sin? Could he deliver them from death? Could he deliver them from Satan? So yes, it may be good to be delivered from the Philistines so that you might have some peace and some comfort in this present life. 
But what good does that do if you die in your sins and you go to hell forever? All you had was a little bit of peace and prosperity in this life. And though David did rule the people well, he did pursue a measure of righteousness in Israel. But was the measure he pursued perfect righteousness? Did he ever establish a perfectly righteous kingdom? No. How could a king rule in perfect righteousness who himself was not perfectly righteous? And we know that David committed great sin against God. And as a result of his sin, he brought his own kingdom, his own family, into a state of turmoil, into a state of misery, into a state of chaos and disarray. He could not perfectly rule, nor could he perfectly deliver God's people. And this was true of all the Old Testament kings. At the best, they were mere servants in the house of God. Now, the same is true there as with the high priest. Some of them were horrible people. They were utterly detestable and very, very wicked men who were actually enemies to the household of God. But even the best of them were only servants in God's house. None of them were the Son of God. None of them were the promised Christ or the anointed one. God did not swear to any of them that I'm going to give to you the nations as your heritage, the ends of the earth as your possessions. None of them received an eternal kingdom, and so they could not bring the office of king to its proper end. All of these offices are necessary for our redemption. Yet all of them were lacking in the Old Testament because the offices were occupied and filled by weak, mortal, sinful men who were obnoxious to death. Who is the only person that exists who can fill these offices with power and bring them to their proper end so that it results in salvation for the people of God? It is only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And He and He alone is prophet He is priest and he is king over his church. He occupies these three offices for us. He has the power of an indestructible life. It is that indestructible life of Christ that fills these offices with power so that they actually result and produce salvation in the people of God. Without a prophet, without a priest, without a king, we cannot be saved. And without Jesus Christ filling those offices, we cannot be saved. So in sum... Everything we need for life and godliness is found where? It is found in one person, in one source, and it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can redeem us. He can do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and He can do for us what Aaron, nor his sons, nor Moses, nor David, nor anyone else could do. He and He alone has the power of an indestructible life. He can deliver us from our sins, and He can grant to us eternal life. And this is why it says that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only one who can save us. And if we have put our hope in him, then we can know and rest assured that we have the right to draw near to God and he always lives to intercede for us and that we are accepted and approved by God on the basis of Jesus Christ. And that should give us great hope and comfort in this present life, especially as we all make our long march toward the grave, that that great enemy will ultimately be overcome by Jesus Christ. And God has proven it to us by raising him from the dead. So then, let us put our hope in him. 
And may our confidence in his salvation ever increase, granting to us greater comfort, greater hope, greater peace in the time of our sojourning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have done for sinners what we could never do for ourselves. By sending your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin you condemned our sin in his flesh. Lord, we thank and praise you that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. And Lord, we see that in him, Lord, there is a source provided, Lord, the only source of salvation. Lord, we put our hope and trust in no other person, only in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you might grant to us an even greater faith in all that he has done for us. Lord, that we would have even more confidence in him. Lord, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of who he is and what he has done and Lord, how it is that he effectuates and brings about salvation on our behalf. Lord, may we always remember that we are accepted in your sight and we are approved by you. Lord, not on the basis of works that we have done in righteousness, but on the basis of Jesus Christ. Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Because we have a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Lord, because we have such a great high priest over the household of God, it is through him that we offer our prayer of praise to you, and it is through him that we say our our amen to, to God. And so, Lord, we ask that you might grant to us greater assurance, give us more comfort, give us more peace. Lord, give to us a greater hope. Lord, our faith is weak but we want it to be strong. Lord, it is little, but we want it to grow and be great. And so, Father, we pray that you might increase our faith, even today, as we meditate and as we ponder, Lord, the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for his immortal life that he has. Lord, a life that is so superior to anything that we see in this present world. Lord, a world filled with mortal men who are subject to death. Lord, we ourselves know that We are all passing from life to death. Lord, we are headed toward the grave. And we see in him, Lord, a solution. Lord, an answer to to our greatest problem. Lord, one who can deliver us and who can save us from our sins and who can grant to us eternal life. And so, Father, we again thank you and praise you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank and praise you for for coming to this earth, for taking on our flesh, for offering your life in our place, for rising for our justification, and now sitting at the right hand of God, always interceding for us. Lord, we present to you our worship in our praise today, Lord, our thanks to you through our great high priest, through the intercession of Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you receive us based upon his person and his work. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.